First letter of C.S. Lewis to Charles Williams, Maudlin College, March 11th, 1936. Dear Mr. Williams, I never know about writing to an author. If you are older than I, I don't want to seem impertinent. If you are younger, I don't want to seem patronizing, but I feel I must risk it. A book sometimes crosses one's path, which is so like the sound of one's native language in a strange country that it feels almost uncivil not to wave some kind of flag and answer. I have just read your Place of the Lion, and it is to me one of the major literary events of my life, comparable to my first discovery of George MacDonald, G.K. Chesterton, or William Morris. There are layers and layers. First, the pleasure that any good fantasy gives me. Then, what is rarely, though not so very rarely, combined with this, the pleasure of a real philosophical and theological stimulus. Thirdly, characters. Fourthly, what I neither expected nor desired, substantial edification. I mean the latter with perfect seriousness. I know Damaris very well. In fact, I was in course of becoming Damaris, but you have pulled me up. That pterodactyl, I know all about him, and wanting not peace, but fah, peace for my work. Not only is your diagnosis good, but the very way in which you force one to look at the matter is itself the beginning of a cure. Honestly, I didn't think there was anyone now alive in England who could do it. Coghill of Exeter put me on to the book. I have put on Tolkien, the professor of Anglo-Saxon and a papist, and my brother. So there are three dons and one soldier, all buzzing with excited admiration. We have a sort of informal club called the Inklings. The qualifications, as they have informally evolved, are a tendency to write and Christianity. Can you come down Sunday next term, preferably not Saturday or Sunday, spend the night as my guest in college, eat with us at a chop house, and talk with us till the small hours? Meantime, a thousand thanks. C.S. Lewis. I was pointing out last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self change into a Christ self. Oh, Elder Eskil, some years we still remember. We do dwell in this far land beneath the trees, thy starlight on the western sea. All blessed encounter, full of joy, unscheduled on a decent fan, with here an addict of Tolkien, there a Charles Williams fan. Hello, listeners. We plan to get you the first episode of our discussion on The Princess and the Goblin as soon as possible. But in the meantime, I wanted to read and respond to some listener feedback and say a few things about the show in general. I want to thank those of you who have left kind reviews and ratings on iTunes. Um, Occasionally, I do feel as though I'm making this podcast in a vacuum, doing the sort of thing I'd like to listen to. Um, And while Podbean tells me I have a certain amount of downloads each week, I've no way of knowing if anyone's actually listening to the podcasts they download until I get feedback. Um, so thanks again for your feedback. It, frankly, it's, it's um, you know, an imperfect podcast, and I realize that, um, but the feedback's been really encouraging, and it's helped motivate me to continue what's 
you know, rather a time-consuming project. My original idea for this podcast was to have something a little bit goofy, but still rigorous that dealt with the Inklings' work. I remember a common story about the origin of the Space Trilogy um, was that Lewis said to Tolkien that the kind of thing he liked reading wasn't widely available, which meant it was up to them to start writing the sorts of books they liked. Now, obviously, there are a good many excellent, much better than mine, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien podcasts out there. Uh, but I really wanted to listen to some podcasts about the Inklings as a group, as a whole, as well as about some Inkling-adjacent Inkling folks like Dorothy L. Sayers or George MacDonald. And I couldn't really find any of those, um, at least when I searched the term Inklings. Um, since then, I have. Um, but... Um, that led to me deciding to create my own. In that time, I've really appreciated how welcoming other podcast hosts have been, occasionally reaching out to us with encouragement and suggestions. In particular, I'd like to thank Pints with Jacks David for his advice and feedback, as well as Andrew for coming on our show and talking about Till We Have Faces. I also want to thank William O'Flaherty for coming on the show, and he does an excellent podcast called All About Jack. A little bit about the history of this podcast. Um, I, I had this idea to do an Inklings Variety Hour since 2017 or 2018, and I recorded a few early trial episodes with my wife and our friend from our church in D.C., Annika. And 45-second mark. <laughs> Welcome to the Inklings Variety Hour, the podcast where we discuss the lives and works of the Oxford Christians known as the Inklings. I'm Chris Pipkin, Assistant Professor of English Literature and Lifelong Inklings Enthusiast. Hey, I'm Glencora Pipkin, um, his wife and enthusiast by association. <laughs> I am Annika Smith. My wife is not a huge Inklings fan, uh, but she was a good sport about it. And while I think it can be really helpful to have someone on the show who is new to these works, I didn't want her to feel obligated to do this forever. Um, Later on, just before COVID, I asked a new acquaintance from my church here in Georgia, uh, Megan, if she'd be interested in being a co-host. I, I knew that she was a Charles Williams fan, so I thought, you know, maybe that would be a good fit. Um, it's because of the generosity and thoughtfulness of Annika and Megan um, that this podcast got off the ground. Since the height of the pandemic, their lives have gotten a lot busier, like many of our lives, um, and they've been unable to come on the show quite as frequently as before. I'd like to express my deep gratitude to both of them for their, for their friendship and their brilliant contributions, both during season one and now occasionally into season two. I'd also really like to thank Logan Huggins. Um, part of the reason I've been able to keep doing this, despite the absolutely obscene amount of time it takes to edit these episodes, um, is because Logan Huggins reached out to me, said he was enjoying the show and volunteered to take on editing the podcast, uh, at least for the time being. I'm a very busy professor, as I'll talk about pretty soon. Um, so, you know, without his reaching out, I don't know that there would have been a season two of this podcast. I'd also like to thank the many friends, acquaintances, and frankly, strangers um, who have allowed me to pester them into being on the show. Um, it's, it's been really enjoyable uh, to talk with all of you um, about... Uh, the Inklings' work. 
Um, I myself am a medievalist scholar and professor, and even though I've gone into my profession partly out of admiration for Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, I'm certainly not a C.S. Lewis or Tolkien scholar, um, having never published anything about their work. I also don't read much secondary literature about Lewis and Tolkien because it's not my area of expertise, and if I'm going to read secondary literature, it's going to be about medieval works, so I can write articles and do things like that. This may change one day, but it's where I am now. My interest in the Inklings, however, remains, and I wanted to create a podcast that both um, experts and amateurs would enjoy. I don't claim to have done that perfectly at this point. I've really enjoyed having scholars such as Andrew Lazo and Serena Higgins come on the show, not only once, but multiple times. It's been a real honor. They've both enriched the show and enriched my own understanding of the Inklings. To that point, Serena Higgins and I are planning a Charles Williams Q&A episode, but to do that, we need questions. If any of you have any questions about Williams' life and work that you'd like to see Serena address, please do email us at inklingsvarietyhour at gmail.com. More generally, please do feel free to send me an email with any questions about things we say on the podcast. Uh, I'd also love to hear your thoughts about anything uh, related to the Inklings. If you ever have a work by one of the Inklings or an idea for an episode, I'd love to hear it. And I'd love to have you come on the show, as I'm always on the lookout for co-hosts, both temporary and long-term. I want to take this time to respond to a few really excellent, thoughtful emails we've gotten over the months and years since we started this podcast. I won't read all of the emails we've received, but there are two in particular I'd like to mention. First from David L. Carter, who came on the show the first time we talked about Charles Williams' Descent into Hell. He responded to our request for pop songs that would fit Till We Have Faces, suggesting the now famous Running Up That Hill by Kate Bush, uh, which is a song that I, at the time, wasn't aware of. Uh, this was October of last year. Anyway, this resu- resulted in my getting the song stuck in my head a few months before Stranger Things Season 4 caused it to shoot up to the top of the charts. All very weird. David L. Carter, who, as far as I know, has not yet claimed to be a prophet, um, also asked if we might possibly do an episode on Lois Lang's Sims, a protege of Charles Williams who had a bit of a messy relationship with him, no surprise there. Um, while we have our work cut out for us covering the actual Inklings work, please do write me if this sounds like something you'd be interested in hearing more about. The other email I'd like to read is a reflection on Charles Williams' Descent into Hell, sent to us by an anonymous listener. They write, Temptation is obviously a theme throughout the book, Descent into Hell. But as I was thinking about how temptation manifests in my own life, I was struck by a particular aspect of how Williams seems to present it. To me, it seems like the times when the characters are most in jeopardy are not actually when they're interacting with Lily Samil, despite the fact that she's sort of presented as the antagonist in some ways. In fact, as you noted in your own discussion about it, Wentworth doesn't ever seem to really interact with her at all, even though she is the character most even though he is the character most deeply entangled by sin. The reason for this, I think, is that the most dangerous form of temptation is not the sort that comes from without, but that which comes from within. Wentworth has made his own succubus. It comes from him and has no existence or form apart from him. He works up hatred for Aston Moffat, and in Pauline's case, a part of her clings to her fear as a way to excuse a fail... uh, uh, sorry, as a way to excuse a fall to temptation, both when she actually speaks with Lily Samil and when she's struggling with her decision to go through with her grandmother's request. The thing that saves Pauline is her obedience. In both cases, she is aware of some duty and bends to it. 
She has promised to carry a burden, and simply the intent to fulfill this promise is enough to save her. And when she almost cannot make herself go out on the hill, she knows that if she calls Stanhope, she will not be afraid. And if she is not afraid, she will have no excuse not to go. So it is not actually talking to Stanhope that delivers her, but the decision to obey and thus to resist the temptation by its removal. Wentworth, conversely, is damned by his persistent determination to nurse and cultivate his own temptation and his unwillingness to bend to anyone but himself. He will not submit himself to a his, to historical fact and so succumbs to hatred of a man who never actually wronged him. He withdraws from society because he is afraid that reality will break the spell of his invented succubus. He will not fulfill his duty either to his profession or his peers in the matter of shoulder knots. At no point will he move to put himself in subjection to anyone or anything outside of himself, and so he's put entirely at the mercy of himself, his own passions and temptations. He continues to drag himself down into hell and refuses to put any sort of roadblock in his own way. So yeah, I think this was uh, very insightful and, and honestly, like pretty typical of the thoughtfulness of our listeners. Um, um, we're really thankful. I'm really thankful to um, to have people who listen carefully and think deeply about the things that we read and the things that we um, notice. Um, so. Um, those of you who have sent emails, um, whether through one of the emails that I read just now or, or another email, thank you so much. Um, please continue to do so. Um, we love hearing from you. So as far as the rest of this summer is concerned, I'm about to go uh, present in a couple of weeks here uh, at a medievalist conference in Leeds. Uh, and then I plan to visit Oxford. Um, my producer, meanwhile, um, is in the midst of moving, uh, so I can't promise a podcast every week for the rest of the summer. I will try to get one out all the same as often as I can. Our last group of podcasts this season will probably be on George MacDonald's The Princess and the Goblin, um, the series that we're about to start, and it's about, it'll be about three podcasts um, plus a bonus podcast or two. Um, we're covering the book itself in the three podcasts. Uh, we're also working on a bonus podcast, at least one, um, about goblins in general. Ord McDonald certainly helped to popularize. I have an interview or two scheduled as well. I might end up scheduling more. We'll see. Um, and then we'll probably end our second season when summer is over. Um, that, anyway, is the plan right now. It could change. Uh, I'm sorry that I that I don't have something more definite in place Um if I could, I'd do this all year round, but I do have a full-time job and hungry children to feed. Incidentally, please do let me know if you'd um, ever be at all interested in supporting us on Patreon. Uh, currently, we don't make any money at all. Um, we also probably wouldn't make money even if we were supported on Patreon, but we are publishing the podcast at a loss of about $100 a year, um, and I'd like to make this up if possible. Um, so, um, yeah, let me know if that's something that seems um, to you that, you know, that, that you'd be willing to chip in a few bucks here and there um, for, and then we'll see if that's viable. 
All right, and as a special bonus, here is that inaugural podcast that we never released. Um, so enjoy the deep cut. Sorry that it is not very thoroughly edited, um, but you know because it's a deep cut, that that should be a feature rather than a bug. Um, I'll see you all next week. Yeah, the friendship we decided really, and 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 this was Annika's decision. I think it was a good one um, to start with the topic of friendship because that really is sort of um, what 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 this was, right? I mean, we talk about other literary movements in the twentieth century. We talk about all these isms, um, imagism, modernism, futurism, all of these groups of people who hammered out this particular you know philosophy and um and then would like splinter because eventually somebody would disagree with somebody else about how this philosophy applies to their art but um but you know unlike all these 20th century kind of more ideological isms uh the inklings didn't really have a particular philosophy hammered out all Mm. all Lewis said was um you know when when he wrote to charles williams and asked him come round to Oxford, uh, as he said, uh, the qualifications as they have informally evolved are a tendency to write and Christianity. One of the ways that you could view this as like, oh, well, this is really novel um, because, you know, this is a group of friends, um, a, group, a group of people who are just enjoying each other's company and, um, and reading their work out loud, who, right. who happen to have also a, a few other things in common in terms of what they like and what they don't like. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to something like what Ezra Pound uh, or, uh, you know, or others are trying to start or had tried to start. But it occurred to me, I, I was reading um, the Fellowship, the Literary Lives of the Inklings by the Zaleskis um, today. And they mentioned um, that actually a lot of these um, a lot of these groups of friends had kind of been a mainstay in English literature um, mm-hmm. for for, you know, at least since Dunn and Ben Johnson would meet together at the Mermaid Tavern with their friends. Mm. Pope and Swift would meet together as the Scriblaris Club. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Samuel Johnson had a club with Goldsmith, um, uh, Burke, and William Jones. Um, so, uh, so you could also view this as kind of like an extension of the way oh, nice. good writers have always kind of written together yeah. um, and influenced each other still over against um, this sort of much more idea oriented and driven school of, you know, or, or movement of, of art or writing or, or, or poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, yeah, it strikes me that those, the, the clubs all mentioned were all like, none of that was happening um, in the 20th century. What was happening in the 20th century was more of the, ideologically driven purist sort of peers kind of to oh kind of to invert lewis's quote on the friendship um which i think we'll get to at some point mm-hmm. and then the the movements were more about the ideology and focused on that and less about the actual people involved mm-hmm. if that makes sense right yeah and having a fellowship together mm-hmm. yeah yeah, so we t- we've talked a little bit about um, the Inklings 
originating basically as Tolkien and Lewis reading their stuff to each other. And then they would invite more friends to kind of hear it. Um, but Tolkien and Lewis found in each other this sort of deep sympathy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and Lewis had already sort of had that. Uh, actually, they both had already had that with, with other groups of um, with other groups of guys uh, as far as, you know, talking and philosophizing. With Tolkien, it was more like common interests in um, uh, languages. Um, with Lewis, it was more... Um, having to do with inter- common interest in, in Norse mythology in the case of Arthur Greaves. Um, mm-hmm. But, um, but who he called his first friend. And, um, and, and then on the other hand, um, interest in a lot of the same ideas in the case of Owen Barfield, um, but completely disagreeing with him about all of those ideas. <laughs> um, and so he and Barfield, and he called Barfield his second friend, right? Mm-hmm. So you have your first friend who, you kind of get the see the same truth with, right? Mm-hmm. And then your second friend who you're kind of interested in the same stuff with, but you can debate like crazy about all of it, right? And then he he felt like these were both really important friendships. Um, and they were, Barfield anyway, ended up kind of being a part of the Inklings. Um, Greaves, I don't think, ever, ever did. Um, Tolkien, on the other hand, had, um, before coming to the Inklings, um, a number of literary clubs that he'd started, like the Coal Biters. Um, anyway, we're getting too deep into the weeds. Probably uh, let's yeah. let's just go straight for some of the some of the texts. So I picked out um, a chapter of the Four Loves on what's called philia to discuss, um, and that's the sort of love that exists between friends, at least according to C.S. Lewis. Mm. And um, and then also um, a chapter from the Fellowship of the Ring, chapter five, a conspiracy unmasked, um, because this gives us a good sense, I think, of what both of them thought friendship was about, right? And we'll see yeah. some, I think, some some good similarities, but I think there's also going to be some stuff to contrast between their two views of friendship. Was there anything else? Um, any were there any other texts that that either of you wanted to discuss? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I might uh, bring in after your four loves just a quick C.S. Lewis poem. One of my goals in this Ooh. podcast is to defend Lewis and Tolkien both as poets because um, they loved poetry, they wrote poetry, and their poetry is actually pretty damn good. Uh, it gets dismissed by a lot of people who I think are tone deaf. So just to throw that out <laughs> mm-hmm. there. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then um, a brief Charles Williams passage on uh, one of his more mystical ideas about friendship, which is really provocative in which he kind of, evan- like, he converted C.S. Lewis to um, at some point, uh, which I would love to go into a little bit too, so... All right. Sounds good. Sounds good. Well, I'll go ahead and um, I'll, I'll briefly summarize um, what... Lewis says in this chapter on philia, um, there's a great radio version of this chapter available on C.S. Lewis Doodle, where you can actually hear Lewis himself, I believe, um, speaking. But um, basically what Lewis is doing is he's in in this chapter of the Four Loves on on philia, is he's distinguishing, before getting to agape love, which is self-sacrificing love, uh, he's already talked about Eros, erotic love, the love between the sexes. 
he's talked about what he calls um, storge, which is affection, especially in the case of the family. And then he turns to philia or um, the kind of love that exists between friends. And basically what he's saying in the chapter is that this is the least natural of, of the loves that have been discussed so far, that when you fall in love with someone or when you feel affection for your wife or your children, there's more of a biological component there that, you know, you feel a quickening of the pulse. Um, you feel warm inside, right? There's a, um, there's a deep regard for that person as a person. And um, as though you're facing them um, or, or, or looking at them or seeing the beauty of them. And he's saying, and he's saying partly that in Philia Love, it's about two people being interested in something else and that there isn't as direct a sort of biological component in that sort of love, um, that it's two people who are interested in or love the same thing, but, um, but they don't necessarily, you know, they're, they're not just kind of talking about their own relationship all the time. They're not talking about each other all the time. They're talking about ideas all the time or whatever it is that they're interested in that brings them together. Uh, and he's saying that in a way, it's, it's the most spiritual of the loves because it's it, in, in, in a sense, it lets you transcend the physical um, as you talk about this or that idea. And that has its good aspects um, and it also has its potentially bad aspects. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'll just read a quick quote from this where he's kind of trying to say, you know, close friendship between men, a lot of scoffers these days would say that's just like kind of sublimated homosexuality. And he basically says, no, no, because these are two different ways of, of loving someone. Like, yeah, sure, there can be sexual love and, and philia love um, in the same relationship, but that doesn't mean they're not different types of love. They are. And he says, um, you know, this actually, uh, I'll, just, I'll just read the, read the quote. Um, those who cannot conceive friendship as a substantive love, but only as a disguise or elaboration of eros, betray the fact that they have never had a friend. The rest of us know that though we can have erotic love and friendship for the same person, yet in some ways nothing is less like a friendship than a love affair. Lovers are always talking to one another about their love. Friends hardly ever about their friendship. Lovers are normally face-to-face, absorbed in each other, Friends side by side, absorbed in some common interest. Above all, eros, while it lasts, is necessarily between two only. But two, far from being the necessary number for friendship, is not even the best. And the reason for this is important. Lamb says somewhere that if of three friends, A, B, and C, A should die, then B loses not only A, but A's part in C, while C loses not only A, but A's part in B. In each of my friends... There is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Caroline joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself, now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. Hence, true friendship is the least jealous of loves. Two friends delight to be joined by a third and three by a fourth if only the newcomer is qualified to become a real friend. 
They can then say, as the blessed souls say in Dante, here comes one who will augment our love. For in this love, to divide is not to take away. Mm. Of course, the scarcity of kindred souls, not to mention practical considerations about the size of rooms and the audibility of voices, set limits to the enlargement of the circle. But within those limits, we possess each friend, not less, but more, as the number of those with whom we share him increases. In this, friendship exhibits a glorious nearness by resemblance to heaven itself, where the very multitude of the blessed, which no man can number, increases the fruition which each has of God. For every soul, seeing him in her own way, doubtless communicates that unique vision to all the rest. That, says an old author, is why the seraphim in Isaiah's vision are crying, holy, 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 to one another. The more we thus share the heavenly bread between us, the more we shall all have. So that's the quote that I kind of picked out. Um, it's, it's one of the more famous quotes in the four loves. But, but yeah. Um, yeah so interesting. So one of the, the things that I feel like, like a lot of this, I like agree with. And then like another part of me is like, well, wait, you know, I, I think what he's saying is, is, is fascinating um, to it, to a degree, definitely true. But like for the first, the first part talking about how um, he says, uh, lovers are normally face-to-face, absorbed in each other, friends, side-by-side, or absorbed in some common interest. And they don't talk about the the love, right? It's this third thing uh, that kind of exists. And I just don't think, I think, to like, this sounds so male, right? I, I hate to, to put it that way, but it just does. Like, because I yeah. do think women... women tend to be more affectionate and to, to want to, to want to bring to attention that, Hey, this is a friendship that's really special. Right. Um, and I don't know if Lewis would think that's like a lower form or something, but I do think that, um, I might just disagree with his, his interpretation of what, you know, what philia looks like. Yeah. I think it's, I remember, having a really strong reaction when I first read it in that same line. And I, I think, um, I think there's something there and I think it's, I think it's not only male, I think it's British. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, I think it's very, um, of a certain culture where, um, you just didn't talk about something and, where you did delight in the friend. Like I, I have no doubt of the way, even the way Lewis writes in his letters um, and to, cause he's very affectionate and it, I, I think there is this beholding of the friend as much as there is a beholding of a lover, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but the friendship doesn't seem to be the point as much as the, the joy of the joint venture and it's almost like a blending of storge of like what a beautiful happening that we, that we are near each other and yeah. that we get to be in each other's lives. And I will say like friend, friends that I've made in my life, some of the ones who are the most dear are the ones who, um, who want to talk with me about, especially girls who want to talk with me about ideas and are, you know, that we're not just talking about like, more mundane things although that has its place too and there you know there's you I can make good for but I feel like some of my deepest friends are the ones who who I can talk with about ideas um, yeah. 
Yeah. So, I mean, there's definitely like, there's obviously truth to this and it, but it also doesn't work out. I feel like the way in which that Lewis sees it kind of perfectly right. <laughs> delineating, like, well, this is a level of, you know, um, right. abstraction. Yeah. This, yeah. this isn't yeah. Con- as convincing to me as like his defense of Christianity, or right. things that he says about the middle ages. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Uh-oh. Right. I think yeah. I think there's I think there like you you all are saying I think there's definitely truth about truth in it and and by the way I I tend to be a horrible C.S. Lewis like parrot um, so for me to like disagree with Lewis shaking we're really here, proud you know? of you I don't know if I'm going to make it through this podcast um, but I think part of what helps me with this actually is reading the uh, some of the other inklings on this because they have a yeah. slightly different vision of friendship um, they, than Lewis does I think. I think a lot of what he says here is 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 great and actually yeah. really important. And I think um, I think his point that this is a kind of love that cannot it it should have to do with some sort of common pursuit, right? Or um, something outside mm-hmm. the two, um, yeah. Which, like, I, I mean, at the same time, though, like, erotic love does too, you mm-hmm. know, and 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 Storia does is you know you you are you know, presumably raising children for, for the glory of God. Um, it's it's not as cut and dried as he makes it here. But right. part of the point of the four loves anyway is to delineate between these right. types of love. Right. I, but yeah, I, I'm definitely seeing like Lewis here in certain ways um, that um, that keep it from being as universal as, you know, as it could be. I think the most famous part of this is famous for good reason Um, the idea that by having more friends you actually get to see other people loving the people that you love and and also see new sides of those people open out you know um, which i think is uh which i think is an excellent insight yeah um, yeah um i i love that i finally like as you were reading it just now, I made the connection to George MacDonald for the mm. first time. Um, like here's the one who like the bringing out that you need the friend to bring out the facet. Is that mm-hmm. um, some, something about the facet of his personality hmm. um, in order to, yes, I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. And um, going back to our earlier conversation, what makes, the inkling so wonderful is how they they draw upon such rich wells of tradition and history and it's wonderful to go back to their sources um and one of my greatest delights in sort of over researching is is finding um i think one of the sources for lewis here is george mcdonald mm. in unspoken sermons just go ahead and read it here With every man, he has a secret, and that is God. In every man, there is a loneliness, an inner chamber of peculiar life into which God only can enter. I say not it is the innermost chamber, but a chamber into which no brother, no sister can come. From this, it follows that there is a chamber also, O God, humble and accept my speech, a chamber in God himself into which none can enter but the one, the individual, the peculiar man, out of which chamber that man has to bring revelation and strength for his brethren. 
This mm. is that for which he was made to reveal the secret things of the father. Mm. Um, so the idea of those, these corresponding chambers, not only in our hearts that only certain people can access and certain facets can be seen, but also in God's heart. Mm. Um, and the need we have for each other to, to see these beautiful sides of God and thoughts of God in our brothers and sisters. Um, and I, I love that there's something really humbling and beautiful in that. And I, I wonder if that wasn't in Lewis's mind as he writes about, um, I'm, I'm not large enough to call the whole man to activity. I want other life than my own to show all his facets. Yeah. 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 No, it sounds very much, um, similar to what Lewis is saying. I was wondering where Lewis got that view of friendship from. Because I was looking through like uh, the Nicomachean Ethics um, by Aristotle, and that's not Aristotle's view of friendship. Right. It's not, you know. I mean, obviously, because Aristotle's not Christian anyway. Um, yeah, I was I was kind of casting around trying to because one of the things that Lewis, another thing that Lewis says in the chapter on Philia is, you become a man's friend without knowing or caring whether he is married or single or how he earns his living. What of all these unconcerning things, matters of fact, to do with the real question? Do you see the same truth? Mm. And I think that kind of holds in in an even shorter quote intention, the two things, you know, that, that we're seeing here that one, one of which we agree with one of which we agree maybe less with, right. right? Um, Not caring, not caring about any of the incidental details of somebody's life. (laughs) Um, But at the same time, (laughs) you know, valuing um, the, aspect of you know the aspect of the image of god that someone's made to reflect Mm. right Um, and only they can reflect that perfectly um and one of the ways at least probably to lewis the chief way that they reflect that is through their thought um and then through their expression of those thoughts although this says do you see the same truth right which which makes it a little more it's not just about different humans accessing different parts of the of God and sort of broadcasting that image to each other. Right. Right. But, but rather it's two humans that are somehow like kind of soulmates Mm. um, in Lewis's view and are able to sort of tune into the same aspect of God almost in a way. Right. Yeah. Um, What what do you all think? Yeah. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It is, it is interesting. Like that, that same truth, that, that almost, that does bring it to soulmate. And I, I almost feel like I'm gossiping because I don't know. Right. Like we can't know. Mm -hmm. He, he died 20 years before I was born. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And I can read and feel like I know Lewis. I can feel like I know Tolkien and I can say, because I'm tempted to say, well, you know, that the incidental, um, circumstances of a man's life like Lewis was annoyed that Tolkien had a wife and a family and couldn't mm-hmm. hang out with him all the time and he, he just wanted to he if he had his way selfishly like they would have hung out and read Icelandic Eddas together <laughs> all time you know and and Lewis did have this soul matey like intense friendship with Williams that disturbed Tolkien in, in some respects. Um, Tolkien thought 
Williams had too much of an influence on Lewis uh, mm-hmm. at certain points. And like that's that's real, but that's also so far removed from any that's so hearsay nested within hearsay. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's really not fair to bring up. Almost like and it was right. also like questioning the the author's works based on the little rumor that we have on his right. life. At yeah, that yeah, point, which yeah. is kind of not a great way to read the text, mm-hmm. but it's what I'm tempted to do. And then, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, Lewis would say, "Okay, <laughs> on the merits of the ideas themselves, regardless of you know, yeah. regardless of whether you think you could read my biography into things that I say." But yeah, yeah. It's, it's hard to resist sometimes. Yeah, um, um, uh. and especially when you think of well, especially when you compare it with. Tolkien's view. I want to. I want to read this one last yeah. um, quote from the Philae chapter, and then I want to hear um, what uh, what you have for us, Annika, as as um, as far as um, your excerpt and, and why you picked and stuff. But this is this is another great part of Lewis, where he's kind of um, referring to the walks that he would take with his friends, so a lot of whom were the Inklings, and they would just like they would walk all day from one end to another around the English countryside and just debate stuff um, and, and argue, right? And he's talking about the humbleness that friendship can bring about. It can bring about a kind of group pride, mm. right? Which he says mm. is dangerous, but it can, also bring, um, it can also bring about a humility of the individual in front of the group. Um, he says, sometimes he wonders what he is doing there among his betters. He is lucky beyond dessert to be in such company. Especially when the whole group is together, each bringing out all that is best, wisest, or funniest in all the others. Mm. Those are the golden sessions, when four or five of us, after a hard day's walking, have come to our inn, when our slippers are on, our feet spread out towards the blaze, and our drinks at our elbows, when the whole world, and something beyond the world, opens itself to our minds as we talk. And no one has any claim on or any responsibility for another, but all are free men and equals, as if we had first met an hour ago, while at the same time an affection, mellowed by the years, enfolds us. Life, natural life, has no better gift to give. Who could have deserved it? So I, I, I love that, because it's, you know, Lewis, Lewis did take up a lot of oxygen in the room when he <laughs> talked, you know, with, with his friends. Uh, but he does have kind of a, you know, a, a real sense of gratitude for them. And, yeah. And, and some humility, at least, uh, about them. Yeah. Um, well, just, I love, even in that walk, like, the each one bringing out the best in the others. Uh, mm. And I think just going back to the A plus B plus C and C being Charles and the loss of Charles Williams and what that did to to Lewis and to the Inklings was also a, a, another thing. So Charles Williams died... And it was a shock to all his friends and a, for, for Lewis, especially um, a hard thing to grapple with. And he wrote this short, like 10 line little poem here that I'm going to read that speaks a little bit to the soulmate sort of nature of that friendship and the, the, the need of that Lewis at least expressed to process and think these things alongside his friends. Um, so this is to Charles Williams. 
Your death blows a strange bugle call, friend, and all is hard to see plainly or record truly. The new light imposes chains, readjusts all a life landscape as it thrusts down a probe, its probe from the sky to create shadows, to reveal waters, to erect hills and deepen glens. The slant alters. I can't see the old contours. It's a larger world than I once thought it. I wince, caught in the bleak air that blows on the ridge. Is it the first sting of the great winter, the world waning, or the cold of spring? A hard question and worth talking a whole night on. But with hmm. whom? Of whom now can I ask guidance? With what friend concerning your death is it worthwhile to exchange thoughts unless, oh, unless it were you? Um, and I, I love that for the... The deep irony of, of course, the one person he wants to talk to about this change is the one person who, whose death has caused the change. Um, yeah. And Lewis's own um, feelings of, of grief and loss, um, but also because it it echoes so much of Charles Williams' own work, um, the use of light in the landscape. It mm -hmm. uh, very much reminds me of um, Descent into Hell and also um, All Hallows' Eve, uh, where Williams has one of his characters is a, an artist who's painting light and he's describing um, what's happening with light and how hard it is to tell if this is the sun in the light or the light in the sun. Mm -hmm. um, and this is something that Lewis, Lewis is echoing Williams' own work um, and relating his his soul change um, and life change to what Williams described, um, which is just beautiful and um, I think a, a lovely sort of instance of what we're talking about with the the influence these friends had on each other. I think uh, one one really interesting thing about it is that he wants to talk about what these feelings in light of Williams's death mean. Mm -hmm. um, and he wants to talk about it with Williams. Mm -hmm. So in this case, yeah. it's he and Williams, not just talking about some idea, right. but talking about a relationship right. between him and Williams. <laughs> um, it's just like the way he's putting it, it. It's, 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 it's not, you know, it's, it's just kind of like, it goes against his philosophy. Most people would be like, "I wish, I wish we could hang out and and talk about how your death has affected me." But no, Lewis has to be like, "Here's how your death has affected me," and and here's here's the question it provokes. I wish we could hang out and talk about that question, but obviously, you know, he misses his friend. Yeah. Um, not that those questions aren't important too, but yeah, he's. Uh, yeah, this is this. I think, and I think we get something in him as a poet that you don't get you know, in him as someone who's, you know, writing, um, prose, um, or, or writing, uh, um, you know, apologetic work or philosophical work, if you can call the four loves that, you know, he, he is so clear. He's such a clear thinker. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and he he's just able to lay things out so simply and so neatly but poetry is about um i mean it's it's about expressing ideas but it's about ambiguity too yeah um, and, and, and it has room for that sort of very human ambiguity that, you know, maybe a work about ideas, about nailing those ideas down and understanding them perfectly doesn't have the same kind of room. I, yeah, I mean, I, I think it does a kind of, I mean, I think it does a good job of, um, uh, yeah, of really, it's a very emotional poem for, someone who's trying to, in general, I feel like C.S. Lewis really kind of holds himself back a lot. Um, Mm. But this one feels like the emotions are amplified. Um, That that is a kind of um, a skill with poetry is how to sort of amplify an emotion, but not, not be so heavy handed with it, right? That it becomes saccharine. Yeah, um, I think I think another really important friendship in Lewis's life with with a guy who wasn't one of the Inklings was was with his friend Arthur Greaves, um, mm-hmm. who he um, became really good friends with um, fairly early in his life before he was a Christian. Um, and one of the things that they connected over was this shared, you know, he calls them surprised by joy, joy or sunzukt. They they both were thrilled by the same northern myth but it's this very it's this very very deep emotion that to kind of talk about it is to cheapen it i I mean Mm -hmm. talk about it in the sense of like it to to like just kind of cry or something like that in each other's you know in each other's presence or 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 talk about how emotional you feel or, or whatever else it doesn't get to the heart of what it is yeah um and I think to a certain extent, like you, you can think of Lewis as like this reserved sort of emotionally dried up Englishman. But I think, I think he has such a deep well of emotion within him that a lot of the other sorts of emotional reactions and emotional expressions that he maybe sees happening in the world, um, including some of the ones I think especially that his, that his father was prone to, seems to like it's it's not it's not getting at the thing because it's not deep enough right mm-hmm. um and, and i think a friend is someone that you share some very deep emotion that's kind of beyond words with i think i think for lewis um where, where you both see the same truth and you both he said mm-hmm. when he when he saw a copy of northern myths at mm-hmm. Arthur Greaves's uh, bedside when Arthur was sick as a child, he he just said to him like, "You too? I thought I was the only one." Aww, you know? Yeah. Um, b- because because the the thing itself stirs such such yeah. deep um, nostalgia, such, such a deep yeah. kind of having having to do with like the essence of of what and who he is. You know, yeah. and that, that's yeah. what he talks about when he's talking about joy and and sunsuit and stuff. Um, so I think it's almost as though making it about the friendship itself or about the feelings themselves um, do a disservice to the true deep feelings and the true deep friendships. But I, I don't know how to, how to put that much clearer, but I, I wonder, I wonder if that's not part of it though. Um, yeah. Well, I think yeah. there's something that breaks the spell, right? 
when mm-hmm. you try to to capture it or um, or look at it. It and I, I think that also goes back to all the the, the mythologizing. I mean, the, the actual myth making that they all traded in. Um, you you have to be careful with fairy and careful with magic because mm-hmm. it, it it's perilous and it also is um, not something you can capture or master or adequately sort of encapsulate right and there's something that breaks the spell um that if you look at it too directly you'll you'll lose it like there's some things you have to see from the corner of your eye to see clearly um and and you also don't want to i'm thinking of like hunting the stag or the bird or something in in the woods like you it's a a rare and beautiful animal but you don't want to disturb it and frighten it away either right Mm. and there's something of that delicacy in the sort of reticence we get with lewis yeah as bereft of emotion as so many of these englishmen seem you know Oh, um, I, I think there, there's yeah, this kind of deep swelling yes. of something else, you know, some something like way, way down in there that yeah. comes out in poetry and, and things like that. You know, that that's actually like, like you're saying, beautiful and delicate and really um, kind of transcending a lot of the emotion that we kind of can tend to settle for. Uh, I, I think, I think, yeah, what you said is a really great way to put it. Why, thank um, you. Um, so, so let me read uh, this little excerpt from Fellowship of the Ring because I want to turn to Tolkien and his sort of view of friendship, so we can discuss some of these differences, and then and then we'll have a reading from uh, Williams's Descent into Hell as well. So this is from uh, this is from Chapter Five of the Fellowship of the Ring, and it's entitled A Conspiracy Unmasked. And basically, what's happened is uh, Frodo's thought he's been really clever in hiding from all his friends that he and his servant Sam are about to go out and take the ring to, I guess, um, at this point, it's to try to find Gandalf um, in uh, uh, that town that is in the movie. Um, Yeah, yeah. To find Gandalf and Bree or else just to go to Rivendell or or something. Anyway, he thinks he's been keeping it from his friends um, as he's been selling as he's been selling Bag End um, and sort of moving quietly to an area outside of the Shire um, that's still populated with hobbits, an area called Buckland, um, where he's bought a small little modest house um, that's above ground, but still comfortable enough for a hobbit um, to to live in. Uh, and he gets to the house and he's thinking, oh, all my friends think this is where I'm going to live live from now on. But actually tomorrow morning I'm heading right out because they would be in danger if they even knew anything about that. Um, and then at a certain turn in the conversation after they've gotten inside and have bathed. Um, Very important point. Yeah. Yeah, no, they have a whole song, it's, you know, and, and, and obviously, you know, talking about male friendship, they're not embarrassed to bathe around each other. But um, yeah, um, at a certain point, Mary's, Mary's just kind of like, oh, what, you mean the ring? Um, and Frodo <laughs> just looks like shocked at Mary because he thought he kept it all really, uh, you know, secret. And he, Mary was like, no, 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 you haven't been as clever as you thought you have. You've been like 
walking and moping all around the Shire <laughs> and like looking at this and that view and saying like, oh, and to think I shall never see you again, you know, beloved Shire. And, uh, and Frodo's like, oh, I thought I'd been really clever and really, you know, really careful. Um, and they were, and then they said that, you know, actually Sam had been telling them a lot because Sam figured it would be good for his master to have more help than just him. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and Frodo says, well, it seems like I can't trust anybody. And Mary says, it all depends on what you want. You can trust us to stick to you through thick and thin to the bitter end. And you can trust us to keep any secret of yours closer than you keep it yourself. But you cannot trust us to let you face trouble alone and go off without a word. We are your friends, Frodo. Anyway, there it is. We know most of what Gandalf has told you. We know a good deal about the ring. We are horribly afraid, but we are coming with you or following you like hounds. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought, I thought that was, um, that was really interesting um, and sort of highlights, I mean, this is a different kind but of work, right? Yeah. yeah um, it it's a, it's a novel rather than a, um, rather than a work about friendship itself. Um, right. But it's a different way of looking at friendship. I think from the way Lewis tends to look at it, where with Lewis, it's like people who see the same truth as you. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mary and Mary and Pippin do relate to Frodo as equals. Right. Sam doesn't, but all, all three of them are Frodo's friends because they stick their necks out for him. Right. Mm-hmm. And then, and, and stick to him and stick with him through thick and thin to the bitter end. And, yeah, I, th- um, I wonder, yeah. yeah, I was going to say, I wonder if more people kind of think of this image of friendship rather than the sort of um, friendship through conversation, mm-hmm. um, the sort of kind of intellectual abstract way of looking at friendship. I feel like a lot of people would see, because uh, this very clearly kind of screams loyalty, right? Yeah. You're, you're, in a way, it's almost tribal, um, but it's not a bad tribalism. <laughs> it's a, you know, it's, it's a, it's a kind of like your family. So we're going to, uh, yeah, we're going to stick it. He says, stick to you through thick and thin. Um, but, um, and it's definitely one that has to do with someone's actions in their lives, right? So it has specifically to do with what choices they're making instead of what interests do you have? Yeah. And it's specifically someone in trouble, the circumstances mm-hmm. where Lewis, I think at another point in that same chapter, Lewis says, you know, oh, if your friend's in trouble and needs some help, you're, you're glad to do it and don't mind it, but you don't want to talk about it. Like you yeah. don't want to embarrass him or embarrass yourself. And here, this is very, like, this is kind of the glory of sacrificial yeah. love and friendship and, mm-hmm. and the joy of being able to help each other and be there for each other, right? Yeah. Which is yes. a, a much more relatable thing for us, I think. Yeah. 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 And it's, it's something that more people have the chance to experience than, like, just this kind of, um, I shouldn't say just, but this sort of, like, very special intellectual friendship. Um, that Lewis is describing, right? Um, Which Lewis experienced, right? I mean, the reason he describes it is because he felt that kind of friendship with Arthur Greaves, with Owen Barfield, with Williams and Tolkien, I think, to to a slightly lesser extent. You know, he's speaking from experience, but but Tolkien is too, um, I think. It's it's interesting too, um, if if you've read That Hideous Strength, which is a novel... Uh, but you have a group of people who are friends and it is much more, they're kind of talking about ideas, you know, mm-hmm. in, in that house. 
that they that they have together rather than like this sort of you know well ransom we'll stick with you to the bitter end and i mean they do but but like lewis is saying it's incidental mm-hmm. um the the important thing is is the idea but yeah they're uh yeah this this friendship is much more of a kind of brothers in arms comrades in arms sort of mm-hmm. sort of friendship than than what lewis is is talking about um any more observations about any of that um i like the the point you made that this is more relatable and more i think more common um, yeah it's hard to find people who necessarily see the same things you do or enjoy the same things you do thinking of the the quote from um uh, from high fidelity in the movie with john cusack where he says mm-hmm. you know call me shallow but your favorite books, your favorite movies, the bands you like, these things matter. And they do, like, to an extent, but also, like, the the people who have loved me best are not people who get my love of Canadian indie rock, you know? Yeah, like, right. And that's, that's, that's okay, because at the end of the day, Norse mythology, Canadian indie rock, like, whatever it is, it's not as important as the human souls we're interacting with which is a point mm-hmm. lewis makes um elsewhere which is why yeah. it's kind of funny that there's this weird sort of myopic view of friendship with him mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. i think he's got a particular vision of friendship that it's it's almost like in order to distinguish it from agape love Right. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he's got a um, delineated in this particular in the in the particular way that he does of two people, because agape love, that's closer to what Aristotle is describing than Nicomachean ethics, where other people mainly wish the good for yeah. the person they're talking with. Right. Or, or the person that they're relating to and and to the to the point of self-sacrifice. Mm. Um which uh, which which says what this is too, right? I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. it's friendship, but but it's agape love, right? Um, so, um, but it, it uh, lies the difference, right? Like it's mm-hmm. it's we are your friends, and that's why, of course, of course, we're scared, and and we understand that this may have a bitter end, right? Like right. facing death if we go with you. Yeah, but, yeah. But of course, we're not going to let you go alone. I think it's interesting. We've been talking about. Um, that great quote from from the fellowship with Tolkien and how that um, a vision of friendship as sacrificial love and, and something that entails from that that entails wanting the, the best for the other person and being willing to to carry the other person in some ways and that links up a little bit with the the next passage which is from Charles Williams. Um, from from his novel Descent into Hell uh, and the chapter is on he had this whole doctrine he called it substitute uh, substitutionary love divine substitutionary love and Lewis actually bought into this um, in one of his letters he, he talked about it um, and his own hope that he could take on another's burdens but I'm going to um, just read where this comes from in the novel. Um, there's a woman who keeps meeting her doppelganger and is terrified of it uh, for understandable reasons. 
and she's talking to a friend of hers who's a playwright. They're getting together like a village play. Uh, and he's a poet. And he is challenging her to let him um, let him help as her friend. And has this uh, very interesting take on on what that might mean. Um, so he says, um, I'm afraid, dreadfully afraid. But he said, that I don't quite understand. You have friends. Haven't you asked one of them to carry your fear? Carry my fear, she said, sitting rigid in her chair, so that her arms, which had lain so lightly, pressed now into the basket work, and her long, firm hands gripped it as if they strangled her own heart. How can anyone else carry my fear? Can anyone else see it and have to meet it? Still, in that public place, leaning back easily, as if they talked of casual things, he said, you're mixing up two things. Think a moment and you'll see. The meeting it, that's one thing, and we can leave it till you're rid of the other. It's the fear we're talking about. Has no one ever relieved you of that? Haven't you ever asked them to? Will you tell me whether you've any notion of what I'm talking about? And if not, will you let me do it for you? She attended reluctantly as if to attend were an unhappy duty she owed him, as she had owed others to others, and had tried to fulfill them. She said politely, Do it for me? It can be done, you know, he went on. It's surprisingly simple, and if there's no one else you care to ask, why not use me? I'm here at your disposal, and we could so easily settle it that way. It's so easy, he went on, easy for both of us. It needs only the act. For what can be simpler than for you to think yourself, think to yourself, that since I am there to be troubled instead of you, therefore, you needn't be troubled. And what can be easier for, than for me to carry a little while a burden that isn't mine? She said, still perplexed at a strange language. But how can I cease to be troubled? Will it leave off coming because I pretend it wants you? Is it your resemblance that hurries up the street? It is not, he said, and you shall not pretend at all. The thing itself you may one day meet, never mind that now, but you'll be free from all distress because you can pass on to me. Haven't you heard it said that we ought to bear one another's burden? But that means, she began and stopped. I know, Stanhope says, it means listening sympathetically and thinking unselfishly and being anxious about, and so on. Well, I don't say a word against all that. No doubt it helps. But I think when Christ or St. Paul or whoever said bear, or whatever he Aramaically said instead of bear, he meant something much more like carrying a parcel instead of someone else. To bear a burden is precisely to carry it instead of. If you're still carrying yours, I'm not carrying it for you, however sympathetic I may be. And anyhow, there's no need to introduce Christ unless you wish. It's a fact of experience. If you give a weight to me, you can't be carrying it yourself. All I'm asking you to do is to notice that blazing truth. It doesn't sound very difficult. Um, and I, I, love, I love this idea of friendship as carrying burdens um, and actually taking on someone else's um, pain or struggle 
entering into it in a way that they can give it up. Um, I am hesitant to like theologically what I think about it Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, because only, I mean, only Christ can take our sin only like there are some things you cannot bear. Uh, Also, also, I think emotionally healthy people don't, um, don't carry uh, some things from other people. Um, But Lewis uh, was influenced by this and Mm -hmm. pray when he was praying for his wife, when she was very sick, she had uh, cancer in her, in her legs and her bones. And he was praying for her and prayed that he could take her pain. Um, and he, he prayed that he could take that burden on. And mm-hmm. he felt like he started getting pains in his legs and she started improving. And he thought it was this sort of transference um, that he had been granted uh, miraculously, which is fascinating. Um, yeah. <laughs> whole different thing but but yeah, yeah. this is um, a view of friendship as the utility of like make use of me like I'm here mm-hmm. why not I'm at your disposal let me let me carry this instead of you which mm-hmm. is a, an interesting thing and also I think has um, echoes in carrying the ring yeah um, i was i was definitely when i first read this in college i was definitely more prone to dabbling in mysticism than i currently am so i would try to do this sometimes (laughs) it didn't really work um what happened like in your experience what happened oh i i would just like you know tell a friend like hey you don't need to deal with this you know i'll try to be afraid for you or something like that it didn't really didn't really work um, at least at least when I did. you probably needed Charles Williams to kind of propound the doctrine you know <laughs> um, because he has a very sort of winning way uh, with yeah. with people but there were people who were who were kind of like Charles Williams acolytes you know who who would all sort of try doing this I, I think and um, you know probably had a degree of success at least whether or not it's theological theologically sound when people start messing with stuff like this there's a degree to which these things work but i yeah i love i love what he does with this so so what does that add like so we, we've talked about like the basic difference between lewis's view of friendship and tolkien's view of friendship where would we put this doctrine of substitutionary love that Williams has um, would it be closer to Lewis's or closer to Tolkien's or something else entirely that adds to the picture I think Uh, certainly closer to to Tolkien as far as this is about like this is about taking care of your friend and mm -hmm. and being being there to help your friend yeah Um, yeah but it's It is its own weird little yeah <laughs> yeah yeah. It's fun. It's funny because Lewis loved these ideas yeah. that Williams yeah. had, but his view of friendship is not really this, right? Um, it's it's his view of love probably, but not friendship so much. But Tolkien's view of friendship is a little bit more this, and I wonder if it doesn't have something to do. Well, yeah, this is this is getting biographical again, um, but um, you know. Williams wasn't able to fight in the First World War. 
Um, and so he, um, his friends who had gone off to war had carried a burden for him and he needed to carry a burden in some way, like for them. Um, in the same way, like Tolkien's experience in world war one seemed to be a lot more formative than Lewis's. Mm. And, um, and, and also like Tolkien lost all of his friends in world war one, like literally wow. all of them, they all died. Um, oh my gosh. Um, so I, I wonder if there's something of that thing of people making sacrifices in war um, mm-hmm. that, that doesn't kind of come more and more sharply, even though like Lewis fought in world war one, it just wasn't as big of a deal to him as, uh, as, as it seems to have been to, to Tolkien and to Williams. Um, yeah. so what would you all say based on all this? What would you say friendship is? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. I would tend to be much more in the Tolkien, um, vision of friendship as loyalty um and there's still i mean there's fun and you know there's jokes and songs and eating together but it's the loyalty and the i'm going to stick with you no matter what Mm -hmm. um that seems to define friendship but i i confess too i don't have many intellectual um friends like that my my relationships are not as organized around do you see the same truth right Um, with the exception of the truth of christianity which i feel like is a a broader thing than maybe lewis is talking about yeah I, i i definitely like i i see a lot of truth in what lewis says and i definitely i feel like i do actually have a fair amount of friends who i feel like are friends of my mind which is really special. Yeah, they're, they're, they're like I, I, I can definitely agree with Lewis. Like, there's something, there's something special about that. Um, that that at least needs to be like a. I, I guess you don't actually have to put, say that these are two. Like, it's either this or either that, right? Mm-hmm. But that that like there is something special about a friendship like that, right? And like, I guess, yeah, I guess Lewis just making the definition for it kind of shows you that right because we definitely know that friendship like that you're doing in war with with your other people other soldiers in a platoon right we know that is that is deeply good um and noble but um it's harder to see nobility in people just having conversations Mm -hmm. if that makes sense and i so i can appreciate Lewis showing how that is really noble, right? Like that there's good goodness in that and that God can be seen in a conversation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, that's really good. I think one of the things that Lewis does get at is that nobody wants you to be their friend out of self-sacrifice, Right. Mm-hmm. people want friends because they want people who want to be around them who actually enjoy doing things with them and talking about things with them. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the sort of paradoxes that we a lot of times have, like even in our adult life is when should I be a friend in this kind of like self-sacrificing way? And when should mm-hmm. I just hang out with people? Cause I like to be around them. 
you know, mm-hmm. and, um, and, and I think friendship kind of needs both aspects to it because obviously if it's just about being around people that you like, when the going gets tough, you're going to be flaky. Um, yeah. but if it's just about commitment and gritting your teeth, you're gonna <laughs> be around a bunch of people that you them. will never like and yell yeah, yeah. really, really <laughs> resent them. And, and you can't really take out one or the other elements entirely. So I think Glenn mm-hmm. Corey, you're right when you say like, you kind of need both and you need to be able to lay down your lives for each other. Um, I think, I think, it is really important. Lewis's insight via McDonald of a friend is someone who like in, in terms of like your eternal soul, part of their function is to show God to you and maybe show like a different part of God from what you're used to seeing. One question that's, that's really interesting to me is that, so we think of, we think of the Trinity in these, in these different ways, right. Um, Mm -hmm. Of um, father, son, and Holy spirit. And, um, and, and that human relationships derive from that relationship that exists within, within the triune God, right? Because we're his image bearers, because we're created in his image, that our relationship, um, you know, between family members um, or between husband and wife, right, um, are kind of like in miniature the image of that relationship within, within the Trinity. But um, do you all see that? at all in terms of friendship like i mean i know and and this is something that that lewis talks about as well in the in the um philia chapter where he says well god uses the image of a marriage feast as a kind of symbol of what he's like and he uses the image of parents and children right as as an image for what he's like as a symbol because we know that god doesn't actually like bear or beget um children right so mm-hmm. so it's comfortably on the level of symbol but but friendship that's more like angelic almost right that 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 doesn't seem to derive from the heart of the trinity as much um mm-hmm. do, do you all see any any aspect of like who god is that is like he's because we know he's a consummate father because before all worlds god was god the father and god the son right mm-hmm. Um, um, and so that's like an essential part of his identity that our identity can derive from, but, but what about God, the friend? Yeah. I love just thinking of that title, God, the friend. And I I was thinking as you were talking, Chris, about, um, the passage where Jesus tells his disciples, I no longer call you servants, but friends. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think for, for me, when I think of God as my friend not as like buddy pal jesus but as mm-hmm. you know jesus was a single man he he was not a father um mm. he was a brother and he was a son and and obedient and showed us what sonship is um with the father and the love of the father in their mm. abiding in one another um but he was a friend and i think especially of his friendship with John um, and his friendship with Peter and (laughs) how like funny that is to me, the Jesus relationship with Peter and the constant like rebuking and correcting and loving that happened there. Mm. Um, And I, 
I mean, you see Jesus drinking, like he was known for, um, for carousing, like for hanging out with people. Um, and he was, and he laid down his life. Like it was mm. the, that dub, that both and, um, like when Cora was talking about of having both sort of aspects of friendship. Um, and I think also the Holy Spirit and mm. how he has sent, Jesus says, you'll, you'll receive the helper. Um, mm-hmm. And he makes things known. I think one of the things I love about God's relationship to God's self in the Trinity is how like the Jesus is always glorifying the father and pointing to the father and the Holy spirit is always pointing to Jesus and the point, like they're all mm. um, looking to each other mm-hmm. and, and glorifying each other. And the father is lifting up the son. Like it's, it's just this, um, this re- recursivity of joy hmm. um, hmm. that just sort of spirals outward and upward. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that's, that's friendship, I, I think, yeah. in, the, in the joy of those moments of fellowship and the pointing to each other and delighting in each other, um, which, which happen in families, too, yeah. and, and in those other relationships. But um, there's nothing necessarily uh, familial. That's just joy in who one is. Yeah, I don't know. I, I kind of feel like ideally, like in in sort of perfect per- Godhead, perfect the way in which paradise would look. I, ideally, I feel like there aren't everybody's family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you you talk about when you have friends, like that's always like the highest kind of goal is like you're like you're like family, right? Because mm-hmm. that's how good your friendship is. <laughs> And so, and, and like, that's the model we have. And that's what we, what we say when we're brought into the fold is that you're brother and sister with other Christians, right? And so your bond has been elevated um, tremendously. And so I feel like friendship is kind, it's like very, it's obviously a really important like place uh, and role on this earth. But I don't know, to me, it seems like at least like biblically, or I don't know if biblically is the right way to put it. Yeah, that everything is kind of going towards family and the family of God. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, those were great answers. I don't have anything to add to any of that. Um, those were, those were well, better answers the question than I, and you have than nothing I could have. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to take away from by, by like leaving them with something less awesome than what you guys both answered so i'm i'm happy to be quiet but yeah those were better answers than i expected at all to those questions so well done. Um, uh, let's transition then to um, the ridiculous question of the month um, which will be a regular feature on the inkling variety <laughs> hour podcast and the ridiculous question of this month is, what would be the worst idea for an adaptation of the Inklings' lives or works? Number one, a Game of Thrones-style show about what really goes on in Narnian politics. <laughs> Number two. Like, yeah. hold on. Uh-huh. Are we, is this like, 
the horse and his boy Narnian politics, or is this like the last battle of Narnian politics? Oh, this is anything's fair game, as as you can tell. Like I I (laughs) clearly thought this through in great detail before (laughs) writing this, but uh, but yeah, you you pick, you decide. Is it going to be like you know, Prince Rabbit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our the Shasta and his real brother from Archenland gonna get up to some, you know, oh, yeah. man in the iron mask crap, um, <laughs> or uh, you know, or, or what? Um, okay, so so that's number one. Number two, an adaptation of Sayers' Lord Peter Whimsey series in the style of Sherlock, and then number three, a Mad Men style show about the life and emotional affairs of Charles Williams in the cutthroat world of London publishing. Definitely number uh, three. Number three, the worst one. Yeah, so, I, yeah I would have on. to agree. What do you think, Lucora? So I, I think we talked about this earlier, and I actually like. I'm and when you read all of those to me, I was like, all of these sound like great ideas. <laughs> <laughs> I would watch any of them. Exactly. <laughs> oh, I, I definitely would watch any of them for sure. But, um, but which one would be the worst? Idea? Oh gosh, um, yeah. oh, exploiting Charles Williams, probably. Um, yeah, I probably yeah. agree. Yeah. Although, although, okay, yeah, I gotta say, in defense of it, though, um, which I, I agree, it would be the worst one. But in defense of it, one thing that Mad Men did is it showed that this guy who is awful in this particular sphere of his life is still like a a, a human being right mm-hmm. which i think sometimes with charles williams you either get people who sort of want to look the other way and not confront the fact that he wasn't a saint mm-hmm. necessarily <laughs> um and and then and then you get the people that just want to like turn him into some kind of monster mm-hmm. and obviously neither one is you know he wasn't a saint he wasn't a monster he was a a guy and uh and and had obviously some difficulties and then but but also wow he had an amazing legacy as well um and was and was brilliant but um but yeah i i that that's how i defend that but but yeah i still think it's the worst idea because it's gossipy um, <laughs> um but uh, how how would if we did Lord Peter Whimsey and have you seen Sherlock An- Annika the yeah. Uh, oh, yeah yeah how how do you think that would work if we did Lord Peter Whimsey and in uh, the style of Sherlock? Uh, I well the problem is they would want him to be fascinatingly clever, mm-hmm. and he's not. I mean, he is clever, but it's more the joy of all the literary references and bonmos and. Mm-hmm the slower working it's much more gk chesterton mm-hmm. father brown father style brown. and not yeah. like the tv series father brown. right right <laughs> like it's a slower pace so i i don't think it would i think it would just fail simply for that reason yeah yeah um yeah but if, and, if we if we brought Lord Peter Whimsey into modern day oh. and had him be a modern day aristocrat. <laughs> uh, a modern day Tory. Uh, that's right. That's right. I mean, everything that makes it so piquant would be gone. I mean, the fact that, yeah. um, that it mattered to him, his, that his, he felt Harriet Vane had been ill used by the man who 
slept with her and offered her marriage, but cheaply, but like that whole, that mm-hmm. whole plot line would be completely lost on, like you can't transfer that. But think today. about how many modern day adaptations there are of Pride and Prejudice where that they is- have to, they, they take that whole like kind of, you know, this guy ruins woman. He's women. He's a woman ruiner. Um, and they find some other way to make the stakes high and make him a jerk. Um, yeah, deeply dissatisfying. I mean, Bridget yeah. Jones' diary is like the closest. Right, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, which, like, the book actually does a pretty good job. Um, but yeah, I, I think, like, as a series, it would fail utterly. Yeah. Also, yeah. like, he's. If you. I don't know how to translate him to modern day. Um, just with the with the aristocracy and he's he's ironic like but he's mm-hmm. also serious at the same time yeah. um and i don't know if there i i can't see a way of of taking him seriously and his responsibilities and his um actual adherence to tradition right right um without without it being a period piece sort of down yeah. style. Yeah. 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 Fair yeah. enough. Fair enough. Um, well, that's the last question I have. So <laughs> thank you both so much for joining me for this uh, pilot podcast. Yeah. It's been really enjoyable to talk to you both. So, yeah. Uh, hooray uh, for friends with whom we can discuss <laughs> yeah. the truth. See the same truths. That's right. Encounter full of joy, unscheduled on the decent plan, with here an addict of Tolkien, there a Charles Williams fan. <laughs>